0: Well, good morning again. It's the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this 11th of August. Uh, No grave dancing this morning. That would be um, note to self. No grave dancing this morning. What am I talking about? Well, by now you have likely heard that New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo has resigned his position. And so I simply wanted to pause and invite us to consider that um, although his sins be many, there are others standing very nearby uh, in his life who whose lives are wrecked as well. And so before you do any grave dancing, <clears throat> let me just invite you to pause and consider for just a moment, for just a moment, his three daughters. And I invite you to pray for them. Like if you want to do something tangible in terms of the situation in New York. Pray for those three girls. They have grown up both as Kennedys and as Cuomos, which in New York make them, makes them sort of elite, even among the elites. But it is fair to say they have also grown up in spiritual poverty. And at least one of them is living in very deep, open public confusion about her identity and advocating for All manner of things. NPR reported yesterday that part of what moved Andrew Cuomo finally to resign was seeing the pain on the faces of his daughters as they watched the news coverage together. Put yourself for just a moment in that scene. So their father's name, which has privileged them in more ways than any of us could ever imagine, has in the span of just a few days become an albatross. And so I want to invite us to pray today that God uses all of this in some way to lead these young women to the foot of the cross. That's my hope today. My hope is that they will turn to the one whose name is above every name that at the name of Jesus they would bow and in finding real grace in him they would be found as well. Now, I'm not suggesting that I know their hearts. I'm not suggesting that I know the spiritual circumstances of any of these young women. I'm simply telling you that their public pain is evident and their lives have not been marked by outward evidence of the gospel. It's not to say that they're not gospel people, and I recognize that. So I'm not judging their hearts. I'm simply asking us to humble ourselves as we consume the news today and let, let us not revel in the pain of others. No matter how vile their actions or how oppositional we find their politics, no grave dancing today, okay? Next up, the show is literally going to the dogs. Yep, I know. You can hardly wait. Me too. Wonder Dogs. Up next. Joining us today is Mo Moore. You can find her online at assistancedogshawaii.org. Mo, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. So I have in my hand Wonder Dogs, True Stories of Extraordinary Assistance Dogs. And I have to tell you, if I were able to reach into the cover and take hold of (laughs) 10-week-old Tucker, I would.
2: Yes, he's pretty adorable. He looked like a stuffed animal when he was a puppy. People didn't even think he was real.
0: So let's talk about um, let's talk about Tucker because he's the leadoff story in the book of Wonder Dogs. Um, and I'd love for you to you know share with us about this ministry and about these dogs. And I think that the way that you do it in the book Wonder Dogs is really effective, which is to tell their stories. So give us Tucker's story. Well, um,
2: Tucker entered our program when he was about 10 weeks old, and he was just the cutest puppy I'd ever seen in my life. He was a golden retriever and just super fluffy. He had a big head and big paws. And one of the first things we did with him was on Christmas Day, we took him to the Children's Hospital in Honolulu to visit the kids at the hospital. And He was just amazing there. Even as a puppy, he seemed to have an old soul and he connected with some of the young patients there, especially with one girl who had received her last rites the day before and desperately needed a Christmas miracle. And what we saw that day and the difference that Tucker made. Really uh, made it clear to me that we had found his calling, and he ended up graduating as a hospital dog. And during his career, he helped over ten thousand hospitalized children.
0: So, if you're listening to us right now and you're saying to yourself, "Well, I want to know more about Tucker, and I want to know more about you know how it is that dogs are genuinely in ministry," the book is Wonder Dogs, and Maureen Moore joins us today. She goes by Mo. These are true stories of extraordinary assistance dogs. And again, the website is assistancedogshawaii.org. So I'm noting um, that in addition to hospital dogs like Tucker, there are also other environments where these dogs serve. And then there are what I would call the more like traditional way that we think about service dogs. So can you talk a little bit about the scope of what you're doing at Assistance Dogs of Hawaii so people can kind of get a sense of, you know, where all these wonder dogs serve? Sure, Um, when we started 21 years ago, our mission was
2: to train service dogs for people with spinal cord injuries and to help them become more independent. But over the years, the program just keeps growing, and and there are new opportunities and new ways that the dogs can help people. And the hospital dogs are one of those. And another is the courthouse facility dogs who help children who are victims of crime throughout the legal process. And I've gotten to see the amazing impact the dogs have on these children who have are so terrified as they go through the process. And unfortunately, as they have to tell their story over and over, they can be re-victimized. But having a dog there throughout the process, you know, from the first forensic interview, during medical exams, and even when they testify in court, the dog is right there with them in the witness stand, um, resting their head on their lap and giving them the courage to to find their voice and talk about what they need to.
0: So these courthouse uh, facility dogs are specially trained. They work full time at the prosecutor's office. And as Mo has shared, they, they help children find their voice through, you know, these very, very difficult legal processes. Why don't you tell us about Pono? Hopefully I'm pronouncing Pono's name correctly. Yes, good job.
2: Pono was our first courthouse dog in Hawaii. And um, she made such a huge difference with the children that she was with during the first six months of her job. She ended up working on a cold case that they reopened. The prosecutor told me that it was the worst crime that he had ever, ever seen in all his years of work and that it still kept him up at night. The fact that they hadn't gotten a conviction. So they brought the girl back. She was a teenager by this time and told her about Pono, you know, asked if she'd come back one more time and she loved dogs, so she agreed to come back and with Pono there, you know, sleeping on the couch next to her and giving her comfort, she was able to tell them the information that they needed to get a conviction.
0: So Mo, you um you shared with us that the inspiration for for this entire ministry effort really emerged like 21 years ago. Can you tell people what the motivation was?
2: Yes. Well, it really started even earlier than that. When I was a child, I was in the hospital for most of, you know, the first few years of my life and my earliest memories are from there. And I also love dogs and just had this dream of training dogs to help people And I put that aside as I went to business school and became a CPA. But when I was 39 years old, I had a health scare. I'd been sick for quite a while, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. And when they finally discovered the tumor, it was quite large and suspected to be cancerous. And the doctors told me at that time that I might only have six months to live, and It took a few days to get the biopsy results back. And during that time, I did a lot of praying and just promised God that if he would give me a second chance, that I would follow that dream that I'd always had of helping people and making a difference through um, training
0: assistance dogs.
2: So thankfully, I, I got that chance. And it's been an amazing journey ever since.
0: It's extraordinary. I'm talking with Mo Moore. We're talking about her book Wonder Dogs, True Stories of Extraordinary Assistance Dogs. We're also talking about assistance dogshawaii.org where you can find more information about the book, videos of some of the teams featured in the book, and a whole lot more about this ministry. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation now with Mo Moore, we're talking about her book, Wonder Dogs, True Stories of Extraordinary Assistance Dogs. We want to give credit to Jenna Benton, her writing partner in this effort. Um, Talk with us a little bit, Mo, about one of these teams that uh, is featured in the book. Maybe, um, I don't know, I could pick one or you could pick one. Which which team do you want to talk about?
2: Well, gosh, there are so many, but one... One team that I'd love to share with you is a a service dog team. The woman's name is Melanie, and she is a disabled veteran. And she hadn't left the house on her own in 10 years when she called to apply for a service dog.
0: Mm.
2: And she was matched with a dog named Freedom. And he was a beautiful golden retriever, and he really gave her her independence back You know, she started um, going out of the house on her own. She volunteered at her kid's school. Um, She went shopping and things were going great. But about a year after she got freedom, she was home alone and cooking dinner. And there was a fire on the stove. And as she tried to put it out, her hair caught on fire and she lost her balance and her wheelchair fell over. And she was pinned underneath as the kitchen was going up in flames. And um, she, she really thought it was the end. But then she felt Freedom's cold, wet nose nudging her under the chair. And he lay right next to her and was just looking into her eyes. And she remembered, you know, that he could find the phone. So she said, Freedom, find the phone. And he raced off. And She could hear him running around the house looking for it. And a few minutes later, he came back with her phone in his mouth, and she was able to dial 911. Um, When the fireman arrived, she has a tug rope on the front door for Freedom to help open it. And so he ran to the door and tugged open um, the rope and led the fireman straight to Melanie. So they don't just enhance people's lives. Sometimes these dogs even save lives.
0: Uh, the stories are extraordinary they are um they are wonderful dogs and they are wonder dogs and we do wonder at the relationship i think that that we as human beings have with dogs and how sensitive they are to our needs and our concerns one of the things that you're doing at assistance dogs of hawaii that i just loved reading about was the workplace readiness program i love how you're partnering with with local high school students who have special needs to help them get ready Uh, to have jobs. My guess is this is like a ministry inside a ministry.
2: Well, it really is. So besides our assistance dog programs, where we train the dogs and then place them and provide lifetime follow-up support, we have an extensive community outreach program. And the workplace readiness program is part of that. And we just love having these high school students come to our campus. And it's really for all of them, it's been their first experience at working and, uh, you know, being employed. And they've just done such a great job. And we love the chance to mentor them. And I'm happy to say that 100% of these students have found gainful employment after they graduate from high school.
0: You now I remember uh, a few years ago, Mo. We talked with representatives from a, a canine comfort dog ministry through Lutheran Church charities. My guess is that mm-hmm. there's some kind of network or fellowship um, of those of you who are engaged in these kinds of efforts. Uh, so, you know, beyond your local—I um, don't know—what is your local service area in terms of assistance dogs of Hawaii?
2: Well, so we serve um, the entire state of Hawaii, but we've also had the opportunity through our internship program to help start programs in other countries. We started the first hospital dog program in Japan, and we've helped to start programs in South America. Um, We also started a program called Assistance Dogs Northwest, which serves residents of Washington, Oregon, and
0: Idaho. That's awesome. That's awesome. These um, these dogs are extraordinary. You are extraordinary. It's just such a, it's a wonderful example of how you've taken something that was a passion in your own life as a child, an experience in your own life that could have been, um, you know, particularly derailing and instead was more like a catapult forward um, and really done something marvelous in terms of meeting people's very real needs in a way that is very unique. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us one more wonder dog story, maybe, I don't know, maybe the story of Leader? Oh, yes.
2: So when I started the ministry back in 2000, my dream was to rescue dogs from the shelter and train them to be service dogs. And the first one was a dog named Leader, and he was a little German Shepherd mix puppy that had been abandoned in a sugarcane field with the rest of his litter. And when I found him at the shelter, he was very intelligent, very mature puppy. And I could just tell he, he was special from the beginning. And he ended up being matched with a boy who was 10 years old. He lived on the Big Island and had muscular dystrophy. And leader was just by his side throughout his life and went to school with his partner. And he even, um, his partner's name was Martin. And he went to the University of Hilo and Leder went with him and just really helped open a lot of doors for him and helped him regain his independence.
0: So right now, Sadie, Sampson, Tess, and Yuki are doing something that I find really extraordinary and unique. What are these four dogs currently participating in?
2: Yes, they are participating in a medical scent detection research study that we're doing, teaching dogs to provide early detection of COVID-19 in people. Isn't that so So... cool? That's so cool. (laughs) (sighs) It's amazing. Dogs have so much untapped potential to help people. I believe anywhere there's human suffering that dogs can make a difference and help. And I led a research study five years ago on teaching dogs to detect um, early stages of bacterial infections. And when COVID started, you know, my first thought was, oh, I I bet the dogs could detect this, that there would be an odor associated with it. And uh, sure enough, there is. We've uh, just finished the final phase of the study, and the close to 100% accuracy at identifying the virus.
0: That's so much easier than having that horrible thing stuck up your nose. So I just, I'm, <laughs> I'm all for this. I'm all for this. Okay, no, um, it, that's, yes.
2: go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it is really easy. It's just a little cotton swab that we wipe on someone's neck. And it just takes like two seconds. So yes, it's much better than the
0: the other method. <laughs> it's so much better. It's so much better. Um and I would much rather have Sadie Samson Tess or Yuki be my diagnostician pretty much than anybody else, because then I feel like I could pet their ears. So that's right. um give give them uh, our love, give them whatever treats they're allowed to have. Um I just I so appreciate you being with us today. Uh, Mo Moore is the founder and executive director of Assistance Dogs of Hawaii and Assistance Dogs Northwest. She and her husband Will live in uh, part-time in Maui and part-time in Bainbridge Island, Washington. The book is Wonder Dogs, True Stories of Extraordinary Assistance Dogs. Mo, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: It was a delight. We'll be right back. All right, we thought it would be fun to check out what's in my fridge during the last portion of today's show. That means we are going to have a segment of what we call leftovers. I'm going to talk about a homeschool dad who put on his academic robe to deliver a convocation address in his own living room at the beginning of this homeschool year. Also going to talk about polyamory, which now has advocacy at Harvard Law School. Yep, that's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen.
1: This is Max Locato. When Peter and a few other disciples found themselves in the middle of Galilee one stormy night, they knew they were in trouble. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The disciples fought the storm for nine skin drenching hours, and about 4 a.m. they spotted someone coming on the water. They didn't expect Jesus to come to them this way. Neither do we. We expect him to come in the form of peaceful hymns or Easter Sundays or quiet retreats. We never expect to see him in a bear market, pink slip or war. We never expect to see him in a storm. But it is in storms that he does his finest work for it is in storms that he has our keenest attention. This is Max Locato.
0: Cold pizza for breakfast. Warm coke to wash it down. Maybe a couple of anchovies. Make All right, we're calling this segment Leftovers. A few things that I would like to talk about. So uh, the first story that I would like to talk about today actually comes from my Facebook feed. And I sat next to this precious family in worship uh, this past Sunday And so when I saw their post on Monday morning about what they had done in their living room to launch their homeschool year, I thought to myself, brilliant. This is brilliant. Now, it's possible that everybody else that's homeschooling is already doing this, and I didn't know. uh, But I just want to say thank you to the Patterson family for giving us a little glimpse into how you guys started off your homeschool year. So there is my friend Daniel in his doctoral robe. Like right, he's all dressed up in a suit and over the suit he has on his, you know, robe with the big with the big things on the sleeves, right? And um in the in the picture posted, he's actually uh hoisting his very uh, little boy like uh, on one arm like he's doing pull-ups on his dad's arm. It's super cute. But what um, what is shared with us in the post is that Daniel had just delivered the homeschool headmaster's beginning of the school year address. Now, there were four people in attendance at this beginning of the school year headmaster's address. There would be the primary educator, the teacher in this case, the mom, and there would be the three little people, right? And uh, at various ages and stages of life, they all happen to be pretty young in this case. I think we're talking here about pre-preschool, uh, first grade and third grade. Yeah, that's that's where I pretty much think they fall. So I'm imagining to myself, what are the things that we would cover if we had the opportunity as a homeschool headmaster to deliver the address in our living room to get the year rocking and rolling in the right direction? I think it would be important to cover who we are And whose we are, why we're here and what we're doing, life itself together as school, like that we're all in this as children of God in the process of discipleship. And there are disciplines related to discipleship. There are things that we actually need to learn along the way at the various ages and stages of life. There'd be a conversation about what we can all learn and each learn from each other, what we can learn from the Word of God, and yes, what we can learn from the world that God has made. That would be my the science part of the conversation. I would probably want to talk about skills and the importance of practice. Some days, some things will just feel like we are doing laps. Some days, we will feel like we are doing hurdles. There would be conversations about passing the baton in team events, as well as the importance of individual study and work. I would probably want to talk about this being an exercise, not just of the head, but of the heart and lives of service. And I would sure want to include some reference to the place of awe and wonder, imagination, creativity, exploration, uh, in setting before uh, the assembled teacher and children, like what we could expect in the year ahead as each one of us grows up in every way into Christ, who is the head, to full maturity. So what would be included in your homeschool speech if you were going to deliver it, a convocation address in your living room, to the people in your household for the year ahead? And it, it, it's, you know, here's the thing. Wherever your kids or your grandkids go to school, homeschool is going on as well. There's there's always homeschool, even if there is also other kinds of school. And if you are the head of your household, then you are the headmaster of the school in your home. And it's a school of discipleship. And people are learning stuff all day long. And the curriculum? Oh yeah, that's you. You are the curriculum for the people being discipled in the homeschool that meets in your household. I want to talk for a moment about... Uh, the Prime Minister of Australia. His name is Scott Morrison. If you haven't already been praying for him, please do. He's a religious conservative in his country, and he's always under uh, constant scrutiny. Uh, He uh, is obviously operating in a very liberal culture. And he uh, has spoken recently uh, about his Pentecostal faith, and the role and presence of religiously conservative politicians, um, and you know, winning elections but losing the culture. And so, uh, I just wanted to lift him up today, encourage you to um, follow news coverage of Scott Morrison out of Australia and be praying for him. Uh, is it a, is it a paradox that religious conservatives are elected but? I mean, like that they win elections but lose the culture war? It's an interesting conversation for us to consider, um, and I think that he's an interesting person for us to be um, watching in the world. So I just wanted to lift him up as an exemplar of a person who is seeking to publicly live out his faith in a way that not only honors God but serves the people, and it was a reminder to me of the conversation that we had recently with the former governor of Tennessee, Bill Haslam, um, about his book, and you know this that uh, that entire conversation about faith in the public square and how Christians can bring their faith to bear in public office, um, but how complicated that is and the challenges that they often face when they're there. All right, I have a couple of more stories that I want to talk with you about. Um, one of them is don't be triggered by Tigger. Uh, and who is my neighbor. But when we come back from a very brief break, I am going to address an issue at Harvard Law School, and it is polyamory. Yep, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, that is because we are doing leftovers, and Paul knows that I have no favorite leftover above the leftover lasagna. <clears throat> my fa- That is my favorite. There's no question about it. All right. Um, you often hear the term slippery slope. And those of us who are concerned about moral depravity, those of us who are concerned about the degradation of the culture in which we live, we might be people who would use the term slippery slope. And then others would say to us, oh, that's that's not you're just you know just fanning the flame of uh, of anger and fear. You're just fear mongers." No, actually, we're just good at anticipating what's going to happen next. So you could call it prognostication. You could call it predictable. Uh, the so it's the way that sin has a domino effect, how one thing leads to another, and it's it's absolutely totally predictable. Uh, and so it's, it's in much the same way that your actions follow your um, words, which follow your thoughts. So the thought, word, and deed, like, right, we talk about sins of commission and omission and thought, word, and deed. Well, it's because we understand that there is this domino effect related to sin. And um, so you can call it the slippery slope. You can follow the, You can call it the predictable domino effect of sin. But here it is writ large today in the Harvard Law Today. So uh, there was a Harvard Law School uh, student and then graduate, Natasha Agrawal, who completely admits that she didn't know anything about polyamory just last spring. That's actually the quote, just last spring. But according to Harvard Law Today, she now feels very, very strongly about it. And that is because she has been working at Harvard Law School's LGBTQ plus Advocacy Center, which is now partnering with the newly formed Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition, uh, which this is what they say on their website: uh, We seek to advance the civil and human rights of polyamorous individuals, communities and families through legislative advocacy, public policy and public education. Yeah. Put a highlight, put a big marker on that last one public education. In case you thought that people advocating for their own right to be in a polyamorous uh, relationship, which means multiple consensual sexual partners in one family system, in one household, polyamory, lots of wives or lots of husbands, although that language isn't always used because wives and husbands uh, language is not necessarily a part of the polyamorous equation, because marriage isn't always a part of the polyamorous equation. So men and women of various numbers and sorts together in a household of shared sexual relationships. And they're not just advocating that they have the liberty to do this in our culture. There's legislative advocacy, public policy advocacy, and yes, and yes, public education. Harvard Law defines polyamory in this way, a form of, quote, non-monogamous relationship involving more than two adult partners at the same time with the knowledge and the consent of everyone involved. And for those who said that back in 2015, when we raised concern about the redefinition of marriage in America and the redefinition of the family over the course of time, when that was called, oh, fear-mongering, you know, slippery slope, fear-mongers, No, it's it's the predictable outcome of the way the domino effect of sin sets itself up. Like it's it's completely predictable. And so uh, this advocacy at Harvard and elsewhere. The what's this coalition called? Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition. Uh, they they want uh, polyamory added pretty quickly to the LGBTQ litany of um, of letters, a litany of letters. Now, if you recall, um, Justice Roberts saying, "Hey, this is going to be a predictable outcome of this. We should we should guard against this. We should warn um, next that you know what's sort of next in this process in the Obergefell decision of 2015." Well, we have now arrived. Um, if you recall, what he said was, why two? Like, right, why two? So there was first, there was the Obergefell decision, and then there was the Bostock decision. And, and next will come uh, the very public conversation the, the, at the legal level, at the advocacy level of polyamory. And so for those of us who are Christians, we have to actually know what the Bible says. We have to actually know what the Bible says, about who we are created as image bearers of the living God, male and female. So this is a conversation about identity. It's also a conversation about sexual orientation. So when you see this listed in other places, you'll see it as soji, sexual orientation, gender identity, advocacy, or laws. Polyamory is now a part of the SOG conversation. And so when the government is working to add soji um, to legal documents and, um, and legislation, you can now assume that that includes LGBTQ and plus. And the plus here at least means polyamory. But the reason you're going to see the plus sign is they don't really know all the letters that they really want to include or all the designations. And so the plus allows for, well, anything beyond all of that. And I wanted to highlight that this morning so that you would be aware of it and you would be prepared to respond. Um, Marriage has a meaning because God has established it uh, as the relationship that Christ has in all of eternity with his church. Like, that's what marriage is. We don't get to define it. It's already been defined. It's eternally defined. We get to reflect it. We get to enjoy an expression of it. But it's defined um, by God. And God creates us in his image and gives us to each other in this bond of mutual, not just mutual affection, but this productive bond of marriage in which we are supposed to be always and in all ways pointing to the reality beyond this life and this expression of marriage to one that is eternal in the heavens. And not just anything that we come up with, any sort of grouping and any sort of uh, momentary expression of sexual affection, that's not, not all of those things are an accurate reflection or expression of what marriage really is, ultimately and eternally. And so you and I, uh, as Christians, need to be aware of that. We need to be talking about that. And we need to be bearing positive public witness to what marriage really is even as the culture contends to seek to redefine um, all the terms related to it all right and then um finally I want to ask this morning who is my neighbor who is my neighbor and how am I supposed to treat my neighbor and so um, we could play a little uh, a little music here from uh, Mr. Rogers neighborhood like that would be good We could talk about Jesus's answer to the question who is my neighbor? And how we treat one another, we could use the story here of the Good Samaritan, all kinds of places to which we can turn. If you were to turn to social media right now, you would see um, a person referred to as Karen, and that's in scare quotes. Like that's not obviously this person's name, but it is a a derogatory way of identifying um, a a white woman in this case, uh, white women in general, who don't seem to quite understand um, how to treat people um, of different backgrounds, of different faiths, of uh, different skin colors. So that's the that's the Karen designation. But I will say that this individual is rightly called out for approaching her black neighbor um, and being what I would call triggered over a Tigger flag. So if you have seen this um, covered in the media, it was first arose on social media, actually on TikTok, and then became. Uh, sort of viral on Twitter, and that was sort of the the, the progress of this story. A, a woman named Ambrosia is the one who uh, initially posted it, and they have a Tigger flag next to their American flag. Now, I can tell you just by the part of the video that you can see, there's nothing offensive about any of this. But this woman, uh, this neighbor, like physical neighbor, who clearly does not know the name of the person whose door she comes to. Nor does she even know what the quote unquote rules are that she references in in terms of their community. Um, but you know, don't make me have to go find out what the rules are because you know I'll bring the rules back and, and and use them against you. Okay, that's not neighborly. It's it's not neighborly to go to your neighbor's house and knock on their door and say, um, "The American flag, I like that. That Tigger flag, that Winnie the Pooh Tigger flag. Well, I don't like that." She's triggered, man. So let me encourage you to consider what triggers you. And then to consider how you should maybe deal with that in your own quiet time with the Lord before you just think you can just go and confront your neighbor about, you know, whatever flag they're flying. Like, let's get to the place where we can talk to one another, know each other's names, know each other's concerns. Um, You know, why why is that flag out here might be a better conversation starter than I don't like that and we got rules. All right we got to take uh, one more brief break, and then we'll be right back.
1: All
0: right, we have a listener who's confessed that, um, that he's been trolling me. There you go. Confession is good for the soul. I love you guys. I don't feel trolled. Um, I want the interaction. I appreciate it. And I appreciate that you appreciate that I am straightforward with you. Sometimes, um, if you do troll me. So there you go. Joe, no worries. I know you're listening. All right. uh, It's been a great day, as always, with you right here. Join us online at myfaithradio.com. We have a lot of resources. We're still giving away the summer reading bundle. We've got a sign up there for um, a video series of of devotionals, um, all kinds of great stuff. So please visit us at myfaithradio.com. You can catch podcasts of prior episodes, you can share this show with others um, and, you know, have a great day. Make it a great day. Let's be people who are finding out who our neighbors are and what they need and maybe actually asking them questions about their yard art uh, before we just condemn them for whatever it is that they have hanging out there. All right, um, I have a a very Jesus-y little flag at the end of my driveway, but as Paul points out, I basically live in a 100-acre wood, so probably nobody sees it and nobody cares. People might care when they live in tight, close quarters in community with one another. So let's be caring and extend the grace of God to others in every direction, always and always. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.